Happy Tuesday, and welcome to the Wish You New Podcast. I'm your host, Karen Bortvet. Thank you so much for tuning in for another week. I have to say, I was blown away last week by two things. One, I finally checked out the analytics as to how many folks are listening, and was amazed at how many of you are tuning in every week. And second, I was blown away by the number of questions that you all sent in for this week's guest, Keith, who is Mormon. There were, in fact, so many questions that this week's episode is going to be divided into two parts because I wasn't sure if you all would be able to take an episode that was almost two hours long. So we'll have part one of the interview with Keith this week, and then part two of that interview will come out next week. If you don't hear your question answered on the show this week, tune in next week because it should be there. I think I had most of the questions answered. First, thanks so much, Keith, for agreeing to be on the podcast. Yep. I'm very excited to have you, and I think our listeners are as well, because we have had many, many questions coming in on all kinds of different things. No, I'm, I'm excited about it. I, I love talking about, well, I love talk. I'm kind of sad that way. <laughs> <laughs> My very first question for you is about vocabulary, because I want to try to make sure I'm using the correct vocabulary. I have heard Mormon, LDS, member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. What should I be saying? What is the difference? Are they the same? They're all pretty much the same. You get some that are more particular than others, but for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with its world office in Salt Lake City, the one with the missionaries on the bicycles, non-polygamous practicing sect, It is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the official name, but they understand LDS and Mormon. So we go by three common names, but Mormon or LDS is just as easily accepted as I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's a long way of saying it. I much prefer shorter ways of saying things, so we'll stick with that. I think you had said that you were raised in the Mormon faith. Was that seen as an option or was that an imperative It was just what you would do. You know, that's a great question. My parents are converts. My mom grew up Catholic. My father grew up Seventh-day Adventist. My grandfather was a 33rd degree Mason. So we had a very eclectic religious background. When I was born, my parents had already converted to the Mormon faith. They really gave me the opportunity to make my own decision. Yes, I grew up Mormon. Yes, my parents were Mormon. Yes, my brother served Mormon missions. Yes, I went to church every Sunday. I attended the seminary classes that high school students go to. But I didn't commit to the faith to the degree that I am today until I was probably halfway through my mission. I went because it was customary until I was about 17. When I turned 17, I kind of had to make my own decision. And I investigated other churches. I had friends with other churches. Actually, my best friend in high school wasn't even uh, a religious person. It was my choice. My parents did not force it down my throat. So I I can say it's my choice, but at the same time, it was a culture that I grew up in. So it was a comfortable acceptance for me to get into. Is that common among Mormons, that it's flexible and families are open to whichever way their children decide to go if they want to keep the faith or choose a new faith? I think with any religion, LDS, Mormon faith included, parents would prefer that their kids follow their their steps. I have a daughter right now who's going to a, a college And uh, she does not have the same level of commitment as I'd like her to, but we've given her the freedom to make her own choices because in my house with my wife, um, we feel that when you force a child into following a specific belief system, that it'll push them away faster than it'll help them accept it. So my wife's family, on the other hand, you were Mormon. There was no other religion. Um, They really did not approve of non-Mormon activities, non-Mormon, what do you call it, traditions. But both her parents were born and raised in the LDS faith. So I think you'll find it's an even split where a set of parents, I think, again, in any religion, want their children to follow. And you'll find some parents are more persistent pushing your child into a specific group of beliefs. The LDS faith does teach as a Catholic would or a a Buddhist or a Seventh-day Adventist or a Jehovah's Witness that our church is the best church, and our church has the most truth, and our church is the right way. And so anybody in the church has taught that. Uh, But at the same time, the LDS faith teaches you that you have to make your own choice. You have to pray. You have to ask God to understand if the Book of Mormon is 
what it claims to be. If you believe that there's prophets, if you believe these things, it's there's a standard statement in the LDS Church that says, I no missionary has ever converted a person. The spirit converts. The people are just the, the delivery or the mouthpiece, but the spirit converts. And so everybody has to make their own choice at the end of the day. I want to ask you a lot more about a couple of the points you mentioned there. But I want to jump back to the idea of exploring your faith. You said that it's up to the person to commit. One of the listeners asked specifically if the Mormon faith has something like the Mennonites or the Amish, I believe, that they have a time where they go out from the church and decide on their own if they want to remain in the church or not. That's a great question. It's funny you asked it. I've never been asked that one. No, I've never been introduced to the option of saying, hey, take a couple weeks off, go enjoy life, and then come back. The LDS faith is, is very strong in consistency. You know, we try to emulate our lives as Christ would. We don't feel that you get to take time off for that. And so, so no, I, I don't know of anything in the LDS faith that I've ever been taught or introduced or shared where we can say, yeah, go take a couple, go take some time off from your faith and then come back if you want when you're done. Another friend had asked something along those same lines. This friend had a different friend who had left the faith because they found it to be too strict. What do you think are some of the rules that may seem very strict to us non-LDS folks? You can't drink coffee. And I say that the LDS faith teaches us not to do things, but always stresses it's your choice. And so when I hear people say you can't drink coffee, you can't drink tea, you can't drink Coke or Pepsi or Dr. Pepper, it makes me cringe. You can do whatever you want. You choose them. You make your own choices and you live with your consequences. But with the LDS faith, adult members that are in good standing and fully committed wear garments, which will often dictate how long your shorts have to be or sleeved shirts versus tank tops. Or we don't play shirts and skins on outdoor games for the men. The Sundays, we don't spend money. A Sunday is a, is a day of rest where we stay home with our families. We don't go to the movies. Again, people people do that. So when I say that, it's a general statement. Obviously, people will say, well, I know these Mormons. And, and yes, there are. Nobody's perfect. But the standard in the church is Sundays is a, is a day of rest and, and you don't go out. Um, no, we don't drink coffee. No, we don't drink tea. No, we don't smoke uh, cigarettes or marijuana. And no, we don't drink alcohol. The oddity of the to your commitment for a mission. You hear rumors of things about the church, like you guys can't eat meat or things like that are just rumors. And there's much more doctrinal basis behind it. I I don't want to waste your time on those things, but you know, I eat steak often. Uh, I drink Dr. Pepper. I drink Mountain Dew. Prefer Dr. Pepper. But you know, those are some oddities. Can't date till you're 16. Oh, my favorite is uh, high school students. Once they become a freshman in high school or ninth grade, some of that would be middle school, they go to a one-hour-a-day religious studies class. In Utah, it's usually there's an LDS building near a high school campus that the high school students that choose to go to. It's called seminary. My four oldest kids right now are all attending seminary. Or my three oldest. My oldest oldest has graduated from high school, so she's out of seminary. But the the three oldest they go before school so they get up at 5:30 in the morning at seminary by 6:15 they get out by 7:30 and then they go to school for the day what do they teach in seminary i remember we had that at my high school uh, it is a four year cycle one year focuses on the book of mormon one year focuses on the new testament one year focuses on the old testament and one year focuses on what we call the doctrine and covenants or pearl of great price uh, slash church history so it's kind of a combination of things that fourth year Okay, now I want to ask about the coffee thing, because that's one thing that often comes up. Why no coffee? I've heard so many arguments in my life. The bottom line is, we believe in a prophet. We believe that the prophet is the mouthpiece of God on the earth at this time. The prophet said, we don't drink coffee. That's why we don't drink coffee. Plain and simple. People argue because of caffeine, because of tannin acid, because of the way it's made, because of its addictive issues. If that were the case, then you could argue chocolate, or you could argue Dr. Pepper, or you could argue anything. The church has come out and said, coffee, tea, tobacco, alcohol, no. Just plain and simple, no. Just caffeinated tea or all tea? Tea. Anything that requires a tea leaf. Now, that's my understanding and interpretation. The church doesn't specify caffeine or no caffeine. They just say tea. I have read in some of the manuals that herbal tea is acceptable, but if it requires a tea leaf, like green tea or chamomile tea, well, chamomile is an herb. I don't know if, I don't know what chamomile is, but if it's a tea leaf tea, no. If it's herbal tea, yes. How do you learn the rules if you don't grow up in the faith? How would one know all of these things? 
there's a lot of different restrictions or different approaches to life than what most of us would think of. You know, you can ask a Mormon. You can ask the Mormon missionaries. You can go to LDS.org. There's a couple different Mormon websites out there that the church sponsors. I caution people, when you want to know what the LDS faith believes, you go to the LDS sources. You don't go to books that ex-members wrote because they're already jaded. If you want to know what we believe, ask a missionary or go to LDS.org. You can type in whatever you want. You can read talks from 45 years ago and they'll explain to you what they said back then. That's where you get the, the doctrine of the church. There's lots of opinions and beliefs and different ideas, but to understand what Mormons believe, ask a Mormon or go to LDF.org. That's what we're doing right now. Ask a Mormon. If somebody decided that they don't feel that this is the faith that they're being called to and this is or this is where the spirit is moving in them, and so they choose to leave, what are they giving up? I've heard stories of people being ostracized from the community after that or not being able to go to their kids' weddings or different major events. Can you speak to that a little bit? Absolutely. Before the age of 18, if you leave the LDS church, you're leaving the group of people. So there is a level of being ostracized. I would agree with that. But I believe that to be the case in any religion. If you're grown up Catholic and you decide you don't like the Catholics, then it's harder to understand the Catholics and want to be around them. So you will and they will both just kind of separate. Mormon faith is very similar. I have friends that have left the Mormon faith. I don't care that they're out of the church. I, I care that they're not in the church, but I don't. That doesn't make me stop being their friend. So I, I don't. But I've seen where people leave the church and uh, you left a culture. And because you left the culture, it's hard to be a part of a culture you don't believe in. And the LDS faith is a true culture. As for the, te the weddings, if you are not 18 and have done what they call taking out the endowments slash gone through the temple and living by the beliefs of the LDS faith, you can't go to the temple wedding. Nobody can. When I got married to my wife, we got sealed in the, uh, what we call sealing in the temple and down in Los Angeles. I had several friends outside the temple waiting for us to come out. At which point, they were every bit a part of the wedding party that anybody else, they were in all the photos, they went to the luncheon, we, they were at the reception, they were all part of it. They just did not get to see or be a part of the I do ceremony that happens. And so... I've never been to a church activity where people did not welcome non-members. Um, non-members are always welcome to come to any outdoor LDS activity, indoor LDS activity. The only place that non-Mormons are really restricted access to is the temples. And I've had people talk about where they don't like to go to the Sunday meetings because we wear shirts and ties. We wear dresses versus shorts and t-shirts or dockers and polos. So they feel uncomfortable. But I've gone to church in Levi's and polo because I'm out of town on business and it's awkward for me even. So I can understand their feeling, but you know, you're always welcome to Mormon church. Any given Sunday, if there's people in there, go right in and say hi. They're not going to stop you. You mentioned shirts and ties and dresses. Are women required to wear dresses or can they wear pants or slacks? You know, it's a cultural thing. You can wear whatever you want to church. I've seen women show up in slacks and blouses. I've seen men. I, there's one guy that goes to my congregation that wears Levi's and a button-down shirt every Sunday. But the we go with the belief that we're going to glorify God and we give him the best that we have to offer. We give him our best foot forward, not, hey, this is what's comfortable, so I'm going to do this because it makes me happy. It's We feel that when you go to church, it's what you do for God. You give him the best you can. So... Shirts, ties, and dresses. In your last answer, you said taken up the endowment. Can you explain what that is, or is that something you can share? Yeah, no, no problem. So within the LDS faith, there, there's four major times in the life of a Mormon. First is your baptism. Second is the confirmation when you become a member of the church. Third is if you're they're men, it's receiving the priesthood. And the fourth would be taking out your endowment. What that means is when you've gone to the LDS temple, you go to the temple and you're taught about the creation of the world. There are no sacrifices in the temples, by the way. So if anybody asks that, no, there's no sacrifice. <laughs> you go to the temple and you're taught about the creation of the world. You're taught about how much God loves you. You commit your life to supporting God and the LDS faith, to live chaste and to be the the best person that you can, knowing that we're not perfect, but still trying your best. And then that's when you're given the garments that people talk about, the magical underwear, secret underwear that Mormons wear. That's when you're given the garment, and that's taking out your endowments. Endowment is to be endowed, and that's what exactly happened in the temple. You're endowed with the rights and privileges to all the blessings that God has in store for you. 
that's why we go to the temple. And then after that, if you get married in the temple, it's called a sealing. You're sealed in the temple. The Mormons believe that when you are sealed through the Mormon faith, your marriage is eternal. Outside the temple, we perform ceremonies like any other religious clergyman would do till death do you part. In the temple, I commit to my wife for eternity. So even when we're dead, we'll still be married as husband and wife. That's very beautiful. Thanks. There will definitely be questions about the undergarments. I'm sure you expected that one would not go without questioning. But I want to jump to something else before we get to that. You mentioned that the men have this third part of the priesthood after baptism, confirmation, and then you said priesthood. Is there an equivalent for women? No, not in the in the youth's age. When a boy turns 12, he's given what we call the Aaronic priesthood. In the Bible, it's called the Levitical priesthood. The Levites were assistants to the members of the, that, that ran the temple for King Solomon. They prepped the temples and they took care of those things. In the LDS faith, 12, ages 12 and 13 are considered deacons. They hold the Aaronic priesthood. 14 and 15, you're called a teacher, a still holding the Aaronic priesthood. 16, 17, you become a priest, still the Aaronic priesthood. At 18, you become an elder and you carry the Melchizedek priesthood. For the girls, when they, or the women, when they turn 12, they enter the young women's program. In the young women's program, forgive me, I, I've never really gone to that much of it because I'm a guy. The young women have beehives, ages 12 to 13, my maids, 14 to 15. Laurels, 16 to 18, and then after that, the women enter what we call the Relief Society, which I've been told is the largest women's organization in the world. The Relief Society's main focus and purpose is to serve, and the priesthood's main goal is to serve. Women do not hold the priesthood in the Mormon faith. It's a huge point of contention for many outside people. They feel that it's a lack of equality. I've asked my wife, who's a very strong feminist, and in her mind, she explains it to me, men can't give birth. And there's a unique opportunity for women that men don't get. Because of that, she's okay not holding a priesthood. She doesn't need it, she said, because she has the ability to bear children, which is a, a gift that no man will ever have the opportunity to enjoy. Beyond the pain, there's a connection between, I think, a, a mother and a child that a man will never know. So we're giving the priesthood. I, my wife is my equal. And when people say women aren't equal in the LDS faith, that tries my patience. Because when I sit in meetings and we have women, they're given every opportunity to speak and to share their feelings and to ask for help and rely upon the men as much as the men are upon the women. So in my mind, there's no inequality. My mom has been president of the Relief Society in her congregation multiple times. My wife has been in young women's leaderships and Relief Society leaderships many times. So that third step, like I said, is specific for men, but the women get, they have a, a different blessing and opportunity in their life that we feel is, is as important and as necessary as a priesthood. You mentioned your wife being a feminist, which I think is a movement of sort of pushing for change. Thinking along those lines of the changes in society, have there been changes that you have seen within the church? I think within all religions, there's an evolution of the rules and dogma and beliefs, sometimes because of the external society. Great question. How do you think about that? You know, the church is, right now you have the LGBTQ community pushing hard for equality within religions and just public views. The LDS faith has come out consistently and said, the LDS leadership has come out consistently and said, hey, you are brothers and sisters. We love you, but, there's always that but. The church does say if, if you engage in homosexual activities, i.e. sex, living together, getting married, then that is not in line with what we believe God has intended for his children. Now, having said that, because that's a very contentious statement, having said that, if you're not married and you're living with the opposite sex and, and, and participating in sexual intercourse with the opposite sex, the exact same standard applies to them too. So even straight couples that are not married have to stand on the same pedestal as a gay couple would. That's come with a lot of resistance. There's a lot of turmoil within the LDS faith about gay marriage among the members, but the leadership of the church has been very consistent. But I have seen the LDS church in the more recent years become more engaged in, like in Salt Lake City, the LDS church, 
pushed along with councilmen and city people to pass a law that made housing no discrimination based on sexual preference. The LDS Church was a push, big pusher behind that. The LDS Church has put on activities and gatherings. They even have a GayMormon.org, I think is what it is. They even have a website dedicated to homosexual lifestyles. So the church is really, I think, making a step in the direction of saying, hey, we love you. We don't judge you. But in the faith, we have certain tenets and, and rules that we feel are most important. And if you're not willing to follow them, then that's just what happens. Within the, I have a niece who is gay. She actually was a student at BYU-Idaho and was told to leave BYU-Idaho because she was gay. I loved talking to her. She's a dear niece of mine. She understands, I think, that situation better than anybody I've ever met. And so she's a great person to talk to for me to bounce ideas and say, hey, I don't understand this point of view. Can you explain it to me? She's great for that because she loves the church. She grew up in the church. She still loves the church, but is no longer active in the church because she's made the decision to have a, a partner and who also was called a guest. They live together and they both agreed, hey, if we're not willing to live by the church's standards and beliefs, then we're not going to go anymore. We don't hate the church, but that's our choice. You know, and I use these examples because right now that seems to be the most prominent movement at this day and time in my mind when it comes to religions with the gay marriage issues and, and transgender issues and, and things of that nature. The LDS Church has always been firm and standard in their stand as to allowing buildings to be used. Clergy, Mormon leadership is told what we call a bishop who can perform a wedding ceremony is not allowed to use his license with the state to marry gay couples. The LDS Church has said don't do it because we don't support gay marriage. But I, like I said, over the years, I've never seen a loosening in the sense of, you know, coffee, tea, tobacco. That's never changed. Churches come out and said, don't do tattoos. They've come out and said, don't have more than one ear piercing. But I've seen the church become more engaged. The short answer is the church hasn't really changed in respect to loosening up its beliefs or its standards but they become more engaged in trying to help people understand their beliefs and standards while allowing people to make their own choices. I have a question for you about the gay marriage issue. In some religions, it seems to be based on certain Bible verses. The one in Leviticus comes up a lot. There's something in Romans that comes up a lot. For others, it seems to be more of a focus on the procreation issue. And if it's a gay couple, procreation via normal or standard route is not possible. Do you know what the rationale is within the Mormon church or is it just that decisions made and that's what it is? No, that that's an easy one to answer. God has ordained man and woman to create families, period. We have a statement you can get online called proclamation to the world and that explains it in detail. It says we believe that marriage is only for man and woman because God created man and woman to multiply and replenish this earth. And so I wouldn't call it a procreation argument. I wouldn't loving relationship argument. It is our belief is held in that God created man and woman for the purpose of creating. He did not create men to love men and women to love women in a sexual manner. We understand the LDS faith again has many documented things about same-sex attraction where the statement is, yes, we understand that you have the same-sex attraction. As long as you're not engaging in sexual activities with the same sex, you can be a full-fledged member of the church. Hold all the blessings and opportunities the church has to offer. But if you engage in same-sex activities, that's when the church comes out and says, okay, now you've gone too far. And that all boils down to, we believe that the natural man is an enemy to God. So it's our duty in this in this life to which is your temporal and worldly desires, your desire to have sex, an enemy to God. Learn to battle your passions and your desires in order to live the life an alcoholic does not have the freedom to do what they want because they're bound to drink. They have and a recovering alcoholic, and I have a cousin who's LDS, who's a recovering drug addict, has said that, yes, he felt free until he realized he wasn't. And now that he's no longer a, a drug addict, he has to take extra precautions to stop being friends with certain people, to stop hanging out at certain places so that he's no longer given the temptation to partake in the world of drugs. So in our faith, they said, as long as you're living God's standards, you can be a full member of the church. No questions about it, whether you're gay or straight. Because a straight couple, if they're married, are within the bounds of what God wants. If you're not married, then you are outside his bounds, and therefore you can no longer partake in all the blessings and opportunities that the LDS faith has to offer. If you are outside the bounds, can you come back into the church if you change your behaviors? Or once you're out, you're out? 
No, no, you can always come back. I don't know anybody personally that is... Well, I take it back. I do. I have a good friend that at one point was addicted to pornography. He had a, a level of leadership within our congregation, and they released him. They said, look, take six months. Here's a plan of repentance. Back where you need to. And come back to what we call being disfellowshipped from the church. church the sense that you go to church every Sunday, and, and you do all the things that Mormons do for the most part, but you just you don't get to go to the temple for that time being. After six months, you revisit this. How have you done for six months? Have you, have you gone over your addictions and problems? And and if you haven't, then let's give it another six months. And if you get your life back in order, by all means, you come back to the church, full fellowship, you're ready to rock and roll, as though nothing had ever happened. With the exceptions, there's always the exceptions. If you're a convicted child molester, if you're a convicted felon, then in order for you to come back into the church, that has to go through the first presidency or the prophet of the church. It has to be submitted to him for approval. Because of the severity of the sin, everybody is concerned about the safety and welfare of those that are around, especially children. So if you've been convicted of a, and, and I knew a guy that was convicted of child molestation, and the church said, yeah, you can be a full-fledged member of the church, but there's certain restrictions. You can never be in the men's and women's program. We're going to watch you closer than we typically would because we want to make sure that you're not going after those carnal, worldly desires again. So we want to help you, but here's some restrictions to help you not fall back into what you're doing because the church always has children running around. I want to ask, you mentioned the document that talks about man and woman and family, which that's a very rudimentary summary, but family seems to be very important within the LDS church, and most people, or many people, associate large families with the LDS church. What is the reason for that in your faith? Can you speak about that a little bit? Oh, yeah. No, that's a great question, too. I have six kids. My wife came from a family of eight. I came from a family of five. Again, when I spoke earlier about the temple and your sealed for time and eternity, we believe that the entire family is sealed. So my kids are my kids now and in the future and after death. And then their spouses will be sealed to them. And it's one big family for generations, for millions. We're one big family. We believe that literally every person is a child of God. And because of that, every person on earth is a brother and a sister because God created each and every one of us. We were brought to this earth through, you know, a mother, of course, but you're, we believe that every person has a spirit and that the spirit is given to us through God. God created us before we got here in a spiritual form. The spirits get the bodies on this earth. When we die, our spirits leave our bodies and go up to heaven. Again, very rudimentary explanation, but in essence, that's what it is. And so family matters, and we have large families because we want to bring children to this earth. We want to give those those spirits waiting bodies. And we believe that, you know, we have an ability to bless their lives. And so that's why we do it. Um, some people have two kids. Some people have no kids. Some people adopt. And having a large family within the LDS faith is not a rite of passage, like some people would think. Adopting children is no different than having children, in my mind. And I've never been taught otherwise in the church. So the church tells us, please have kids. But if you can't, then please adopt kids. And if you can't, then please be nice to everybody. I think there's a, a misunderstanding out there from people that think we have to have large families. We don't. We believe in birth control. My wife and I used it. I've got brothers who've used it. It's it's part of life. While we say have large families, be responsible. Don't have 13 kids when you can't afford 13 kids. Don't be, you know, don't say, I got 13 kids and I make 20 grand a year. That's just dumb. Um, you know, we had what we felt we could handle and we stopped. And so that's, I think that'd be the best way to look at it. Yeah, that's a great explanation. This question I don't fully understand. It may be along the same lines. Maybe it will make sense to you. Someone asked, why do Mormons baptize anyone in their genealogy pool into the Mormons if they do this? Guys, it's called baptisms for the dead. So what happens is the LDS faith believes that, like every other Christian religion, Christ will come back to this earth, and his pure gospel will be taught by him. We will, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus is the Christ. We believe that, as every other Christian faith does. One of the differences between the LDS faith and the Christian faith and normal Christian Baptists and, and whatnot faith, is that we believe that when you die, if you've never had the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ as the eldest faith presents it, we believe that you are put into kind of a holding area, for lack of a better term, not purgatory, not purgatory. Uh, we call it the spirit world, where we all wait until Christ makes a final judgment, and then we're all given our final glory. So between that time, which would be today, and the time that Christ comes and these things all happen, people are up in spirit world, spirit paradise, 
or prison, depending on your life and this, how you lived your life, are trying to learn the gospel. And we believe in order to be saved, using the Christian term, you have to be baptized. And we use Nicodemus. This, you know, Nicodemus asked Jesus, what do I have to do to be saved? He says, you must be born of the spirit and of, or born of the water and of the spirit. So what we do is we baptize in proxy of those that are dead. So they're given an opportunity in the next life, in the spirit world where they're at currently, to accept that ordinance and take the next step in whatever that may be up there. Now, people think that the Mormons baptize the dead in order to build their roles, and that's a bunch of garbage. The LDS faith does not include baptisms for the dead as part of their memberships on this earth. Um, we have been sued for doing it. The uh, Jewish community sued us, and we stopped it. You'll get some zealous members of the church that think they need to, you know, Michael Jackson died, let's go do his, his work, and he can be baptized, and, 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 you know, oh, Tom Petty just passed away, let's get his temple. The church frowns upon that, and if they catch the names, they will stop it and shut it down. Out of respect for those that are here, we respect all religions. We, we truly believe that every person in this world has a right to believe and exercise that belief in their own way. And we're not here to force you to believe our way. Just because we've done a baptism for an ancestor does not mean they're Mormon. It does not mean that they've been taken out of purgatory in the Catholic faith and moved somewhere else, or they've been pulled from one aspect of a death belief to another. We believe that they're all hanging out in the spirit world. And we believe they're waiting for these things to be done. And we do it. And it allows them to have that opportunity. And so there's a, there's a huge, not a huge, I would say, a, a discussion among non-members that say, that's not right, that's not fair. Well, depending on who you are, my personal belief is the person's no longer here. It doesn't affect them in this life. But if a family member asked me not to do it, then I would respect them and not do it. My mother's parents were Catholic, and her siblings asked my mom not to do it, and she didn't. She's holding off. My father's parents were obviously not members of the church, but we have done the work for them because my father's sister is also a member of the church and said, go ahead. So my, my father went and did all the, the work for his parents. So, But yes, baptisms for the dead are done in the Mormon temple. There's a baptismal font within the LDS temples. Every temple's got one. Two people go down into the baptismal font like you've seen any other church do. The, the Baptist will put his arm to the square, says in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, I baptize you for and on behalf of John Doe, who is dead. And they get baptized. And that's it. And then they go to the next one. In the name of John Picard, or the name of whatever. And then if it's for women, then the Baptist, who's a male, because the baptisms are done by the priesthood. If it's a female name, then females will come down into the baptismal font. And the Baptist will baptize them for and on behalf of whatever the female's name is. And they will do that. So is that kind of baptism for a whole group at one time, or do they set it up on a one-on-one -on -one basis? Every congregation, now, for those who don't know, congregation is called a ward within the LDS faith. The basic congregation is a ward. Multiple wards make a stake. Multiple stakes make an area. Multiple areas make up the church. So every ward will take one night a month and go to their local temple and take all the youth, and they will do baptisms for the dead with the youth. Every stake will take one day a month and set up for the whole stake to do it. And so you volunteers, you can go. Um, if you're recently, the LDS faith has started letting any child over the age of 12 go into temples for the purpose of baptisms with their parents. So I've taken my children to the temple with names that we have prepared and said, hey, let's take you to the temple and we'll do baptisms. We'll do 30 of them. Then we all go home. Well, we got to dinner first, and then we go home. So that's a, it can happen both ways. You do need to call the temple and set it up. You can't just show up. You call the temple and schedule that specific ordinance because it takes a certain number of people to make it happen. They want to make sure they have everybody available that needs to be there. You said those who have not accepted the Christian faith in the way that the Mormon church sees it go to a sort of, I think you said, holding area, not purgatory, though, similar to that. So do you think in the faith that non-Mormons cannot go to heaven as a Mormon would? Now, on that side of it, there's a, in the spirit world, there's two places, a spirit prison and spirit paradise. Now, for us, that is the go-between between when Christ himself died and when Christ comes back. Until that event of him returning happens, spirit world is heaven, okay, for, for the, the standard Christian belief. If you've lived a good life and God judged you to have been good enough, he'll put you in the spirit world, are in the spirit paradise within the spirit world, 
to be taught and to learn and to grow. If you've lived a life that is not consistent with what God thinks you should have done, then you end up in spirit prison within the spirit world. The short answer is the spirit prison is a short-term situation and is not an eternal stand. It is a short-term issue. We believe that once Christ comes back to the earth and has his thousand-year reign, he will then pass judgment, and then every person will be assigned a degree of glory. In the Bible, it talks about my father has many mansions, and we believe that to be a fact. We've broken into three levels of glory or three levels of heaven the celestial the telestial and the terrestrial and then you have hell which is outer darkness so we have so that'd be four levels actually four levels and once you have made all of the decisions you're going to make and christ passes judge or god passes judgment on you then you'll be assigned to one of those four kingdoms and that's where you'll spend eternity but we do believe that in order to make it to the celestial kingdom the highest degree you will have to have been baptized a member of the LDS faith, sealed in a temple, or at least had taken out your endowments. Otherwise, you can't get there. But just because you've done that does not guarantee that you're going to make it. We recently had a member of our 70, which is a, a high authority within our church, excommunicated from the LDS faith, which means he's lost all of his eternal blessings within the LDS faith. He's no longer a member of our church. He can still come to church, but he's no longer able to go to the temple. He's no longer able to be over any meetings, responsible for anything. He just shows up as a standard parishioner to pray and to worship with us as, as we would. Who is it that makes those decisions? You said those were the bishops? So it's an individual basis. If it is, depending on the level of the sin, adultery, pornography, murder, typically what happens is the, the person that's going to be excommunicated sits before a peer of 12. Six of those 12 advocate for him to stay, and six of those 12 advocate for him to leave. And then it's called a high council. And those 12 members hear out what this person did. Are they repentant? Do they feel remorseful? Or have they just made a decision and leaving the church is the best thing for them? That's how a person is excommunicated from the church. That council decides at that point, hey, you're an apostate. You, you're teaching against the church. You're pushing against the church. You're dragging people away from the church. Just leave the church. You obviously don't want to be a member, so go. That sounds harsh, but that's my view. If you've committed adultery and you think it's wrong, then you still might get excommunicated. But in a year, let's talk and see where you're at in a year. Are you still committing adultery or have you stopped? And are you living a life that's more consistent? And if you are, then let's bring you back into the church. So even after you're excommunicated, you can come back. There's always a way to return to God. Are those 12 from the priesthood or... Are they also from the Women's Relief Organization? Who's in that group? That's all priesthood. And is that the same process for male and female members of the church? Majority of the female happens with the local clergy, so a bishop and his counselors usually handle that. If it's a grievous enough sin, then it can go up to the high council. But it's more common that the local bishop handles the female side of the disciplinary actions that need to be done. I don't know why. So now I'm going to jump us way back again. Something we talked about before, think about families, and at the very beginning you said, I think, I can't remember your exact words, but you said the mainstream Mormons, not the polygamous side. That, of course, was one of the many questions that came from our listeners. For many, hearing the word Mormon makes them think of polygamy. Can you explain the history there? Sure. The LDS faith was created back in 1836. Later, after the church was created, Joseph Smith, the prophet, the founder of our, of our faith, was told to practice polygamy. Now, polygamy does not mean necessary sexual relations. Again, we have an eternal view of life. We look at the eternal aspect of it. A man cannot make it to the top kingdom, the celestial kingdom, without a wife, and a wife can't make it there without a husband. So the purpose of polygamy was an eternal thing, not a world, a uh, temporal view. So yes, Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. Now, it was a, a new concept. We believe that the church was started by question was started because a, a young boy asked a question, and we believe that God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ appeared to Joseph Smith in a grove of trees and told him, "Hey, we got some work for you to do," and that's where it all started. So Joseph Smith had a question; it was answered, and then we believe that God allows us. We have a saying in the church, a man commanded in all things is a slothful servant. You should not have to be commanded in everything. You should be quiz you should ask questions, you should wonder, you should have concerns, and you should go to God. So Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. 
Other members of the church, specific members, were also asked to practice polygamy until Utah wanted to become a state. And the government said, hey, polygamists, that's wrong. It's a horrible thing that you're doing. We think it's bad. Stop it. And the LDS church wouldn't because they felt God wanted them to do it. And so they continued it until they were until the day that God said, okay, you can stop now. There's a lot of arguments from people that say the Mormon church changes for the times. No, trust me, the, the church would have, would have loved to have made, I think, decisions sooner rather than later. But we believe God guides us and says, you're not ready for this, so we're going to wait till you are ready. Or the world's not ready for that, so we're going to stop it. Polygamy is one of those things. The world's not ready for polygamy, so the church stopped it because God told the leadership to stop it. Because it, it's very possible that men were becoming carnal and saying, hey, I've got three wives. I'm going to go, you know, I've got Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night covered. So God said, hey, you know what? You guys can't handle it. You're, you're just, you're too immature. I'm stopping it. It's over. Today there is sects of the LDS faith break-offs or no. They're in no way, shape, or form connected to the Salt Lake City World Headquarters based church that I'm with, but you do hear Warren Jaffs and the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ or Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ, and they practice it on their own, but they perverted the practice. They don't do it for eternal aspects like we did. And people argue old men perverts back in the days, perverts sleeping with women, and I've always thought, and it's been a challenge for me, but I've always thought if they did, then why didn't those women all have lots of kids? Joseph Smith wasn't known to have any children other than through his wife, Emma. And he had, I want to say, several, plural, or several wives that he was sealed to. Again, for the eternal belief that families are forever and that we're all brothers and sisters and that when we die, in order to make it to the social kingdom, you must have a spouse to get there. You mentioned the different sects. That was another question someone came up with thanks to the various reality TV shows, I guess, that exist about polygamist relationships. How do you respond to that? People believe what they want. They practice, a reli- they practice their beliefs how they want, and they will hang their hat on a belief system that suits them, whatever name that may be. So when I hear the person say they're polygamist, on my mission, I actually served with a kid who came from a polygamous family that broke off from the polygamous group and converted to the LDS faith. And he was, you know, he was one of the children born through polygamy. And I asked him about it. And he told me, he says, yeah, I four moms and all these other things going on. And I said, why'd you leave? And he said, because it wasn't what we thought and we didn't believe it. And so when I hear people talk about like Warren Jeffs and stuff like that, you have breakoffs of every religion you know, not to disparage any one religion, but, you know, Seventh-day Adventists were a breakoff of one group. Catholics, depends if you're Greek or Roman. Lutherans, for Martin Luther, who was a breakoff from the Catholic Church. Then you have Baptists, you know, East Coast, West Coast, Bible Belt. So each religion will adopt their own tenet of beliefs and practice them as they see appropriate. The Church of Christ used to be the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And change their names because they no longer believed the same as they did when they started. So they changed their name and became part of a Christian coalition and have moved on. So when people tell me that Mormons are polygamists, no, they're not. I mean, at least not my, my, not my Mormon group. My, the church I belong to has 14 million members, and there's no polygamy in that church that the church condones. I mean, if people practice it, that's because they're going against what the church teaches. You mentioned that polygamy had stopped because perhaps the world wasn't ready for it. One of the questions that someone asked was, if it were legal across the USA, would the LDS church choose to return to the practice of plural marriage? Or does it not have anything to do with legality? Great question. I can't answer. I can't speak for the church that way. My opinion would be that just because it's legal doesn't make it right. And so I think that the church would make their own decision. An example I use is currently the Boy Scouts of America, church in its stand on homosexual activities, I was convinced when the Boy Scouts of America changed their stand and said, yes, openly gay leaders and scouts, something that they'd fought for decades. I thought for sure the church would walk away, and they didn't. Today, the Boy Scouts of America said, hey, now we're going to let girls into the scouting program. And in the LDS church, the Boy Scouts of America is in all-boy activities. And so, again, the Boy Scouts of America, at its core, may have values consistent with the LDS faith, but are changing. And so the LDS Church is changing away from them. I think over time that will happen. 
So if polygamy came legal tomorrow, polygamy is not a, I don't believe polygamy is ever here for the purpose of satisfying men's desires or women's desires. I believe polygamy is a spiritual thing. It's an eternal concept, like the Ten Commandments. It, there's a higher rule and a higher law. And like I said, just because somebody makes something legal doesn't make it right. I don't know that the church would practice polygamy because it's legal any more than they would because it's not legal. I think the church will do what the church thinks is right when they think it's right. Now we're going to jump back to another question that I'm sure you knew was going to be here. Someone asked, can you tell me about the supposed magic powers of the undergarments? Gladly. The garments are two pieces, tops and bottoms. I'll, I'll dispel some rumors right now. You do not have to wear your garments when having sex. They do not have special holes cut in them to have sex. That's all garbage. I hear that all the time. And it drives me nuts. So that's all garbage. I have a wife. She wears garments. And I guarantee there's nothing about that. The bottoms look like boxer briefs. The tops can be bought two ways. One looks like a regular white t-shirt. And the other one has a dipping neckline. I don't know how to explain it. It's just kind of a dipping neckline. Kind of like you'd see in old school, uh, tank, like a tank top. There you go. It's like a tank top with sleeves. The reason we wear the garments, and the women's garments are the same, by the way. And yes, they do sell green ones for military personnel. And when women are nursing, the tops of the women, the women's tops have special flaps that will open so they can nurse their babies. The garment is the first thing you wear. You don't wear anything under it. It is like underwear that way. Garments are sacred to us because they remind us of the commitments that we've made to our spouses and to God. The reason they're called magical is because we believe that by wearing them, it protects us. Not necessarily literally protects us, but it's a constant reminder as I walk through my day, like a wedding ring, that I have made certain commitments in my life to live my life a certain way. That's why I wear my garments. No other reason. Just as I wear a wedding ring, it reminds me that, not that I need to be reminded because I love my wife, but it reminds me and tells everybody else, hey, I'm married. I've made a commitment to my spouse. I live under those rules because I've chosen to. Garments are the same thing. And as for them being magical, again, we believe that they'll protect you. If God wants you to be protected, you'll be protected whether you're wearing garments or not. Garments are, you know, the metaphor protection there. And several years ago, Marriott, J.W. Marriott, the owner of Marriott Hotels, He's member talked about he was on a boat that was on fire once and everything burned up to his garment line and then stopped. Nothing burned beyond that. I've heard of people that have been shot and the garment, the bullet stopped at the garment. I've heard people were stabbed and the garment protected them. I believe in intervention from God in any aspect of your life. Falling off a cliff and suddenly a tree pops out and God saves you. I believe God can save you with or without your garments on. And so, because all, when you do sports, typically they don't wear garments. Steve Young talked about it when he was a football player. He did not wear garments on the football field. When I go swimming, I don't wear garments. When my wife goes swimming, she doesn't wear garments. She wears a bathing suit. When you take a shower, you don't wear your garments. I hear that one a lot, too. I guess I'd be about to sum up of, of what garments are all about. You said that it's part of also showing your commitment, which makes me think about divorce. Does that exist in the church, and how is that handled? I'm from a Catholic background, so we have the whole annulment process where basically if you can prove that one of the parties or it wasn't entered into under good faith, then it is just removed. Again, that's a very rudimentary summary of annulment. How does that work within your church? No, great question. I have lots of divorced people within my family. deal with that often. I know lots of divorced people. Several have remarried. Within the obvious faith, again, we have the eternal perspective of marriage. Um, this life is a life where we are on this earth to prove ourselves worthy to live with God in the eternities. If you divorce, that's a legal issue between you and your spouse, and it's a governmental issue. It is not a religious issue. The only time it becomes religious is when the person wants to remarry. You have been sealed. The seal is not broken within the LDS faith just because you have a divorce. My brother-in-law just got divorced from his wife. All kinds of reasons why, but they're still sealed as, a sp as spouses within the LDS faith. The question everybody asks him, well, if you're divorced here, why would you want to be married in the next life? I don't know that you will be. I don't know that it's going to happen. I know that I have a brother-in-law that divorced my sister-in-law, and he wanted to get remarried, and he did. She wanted to get remarried, and the church broke the ceiling so she could get remarried to another man. So her and, and, and her uh, new spouse wanted to get married, wanted to get sealed within the LDS temple, and so they petitioned the church, and the church said, yes, that is your wish, so shall it be, and they were the seal was broken between her and her first husband, and now she's still to her new husband. But again, marriage 
in my mind, the eternal aspect of it kind of gives reason to try harder at your marriage than typically till death do you part. I think in this world, my opinion, as I look at the world today, with so many divorces and so many breakups and so many people that are that are living together but aren't married, marriage has been played out to it's a dating game. We're going to be dating for the next 15 years and then we'll get divorced and find somebody else or this marriage isn't working for me. You know, let's split up our personal belongings and move on. For me, it's eternal. And so as I look at it, I think I made a commitment to God and my wife that I would give every effort I can to make this marriage work. Not just my wife, but to God. And so I have a different view of it. And I think the LDS faith really pushes that view is you're, you're marrying forever, not just till death do you part, not just for convenience. It's eternal. And it has an, an eternal consequence. And so we take marriage very, very seriously within the LDS faith. It's important, I think, in my mind for people to look at it that way. And so when divorce happens, it's painful for everybody. Divorce sucks. But it is reality, and the LDS faith doesn't require anything special from you to file for divorce. If you're divorced, then you're divorced. And you can remarry civilly ten more times if you want. Church doesn't care. It's between you and your and your spouse. But the sealing is where the church gets involved because that's a religious ritual. So that, that does change. But as for the actual certificate, get divorced, get remarried, Mormon church won't stop you. And they won't require anything special from you. I hope that all of you listening have been getting as much out of this interview with Keith as I was able to. I actually was lucky enough to grow up around people who were a part of the Mormon church, but there's always more to learn and different nuances of the faith, and I feel like I have become much more intelligent talking to Keith. I hope that you will tune in again next week to part two of this interview. He answers more of your questions, talks about the Mormon welfare program, he talks about their beliefs on heaven and the idea or the commonly heard rumor of Mormons having their own worlds or the belief that they become gods in heaven. So more of those rumors are addressed in the interview next week. I probably don't say this enough, but I appreciate you listening. And if you have been enjoying the podcast, we've now been going for a month Please take the time to share it with your friends, loved ones, neighbors, enemies, anybody who might want to listen to it. We also would very much appreciate any reviews that you can give through your podcast app. Definitely check out the website and look to see what other upcoming interviews we have and submit your questions. I can't tell you how great it was preparing for the interview with Keith to have so many of you involved in that process with questions. So... You can mull over what you've learned so far about the Mormon faith this week, and be sure to tune in next week for part two of our interview with Keith. Have a great week. And remember, people are people are people. Keep listening, keep learning, keep loving.